again, friends. This is Craig Dunham coming to you from Bozeman, Montana, here on the Second Drafts podcast. Uh, really glad to have you with us, and uh, we've got a great show planned for you today. Um, great guests. We this podcast is basically something again. I'm doing once a month um, in addition to my newsletter slash blog called Second Drafts uh, on Substack, craigdunham.substack.com. And the, uh, we're, we're doing a blog every Friday and then um, we do a podcast once a month as well as a book review, in-depth book review once a month as well. So uh, go to craigdunham.substack.com if you haven't already. And we'd love to have you uh, join us and, and keep up that way. Uh, this podcast is basically, I just talk with friends, uh, folks I know um, who have experience and expertise in a particular area, have interesting stories, grew up very differently from me. And um, today is an example of that. Um, we have with us a gentleman named Nick Ross. Nick comes from the small community of White Swan, located on the Yakima Indian Reservation in Washington State. A graduate of Montana State University, Nick earned his degree in philosophy with a minor in Native American Studies. While a student, Nick was very active in the community, serving in leadership with MSU's American Indian Council Nations and as a representative in the ASMSU student government. And as a part of the American Indian Alaska Native Student Success Team, Nick works daily on the ground with students, programming educational, cultural, and social initiatives designed to engage and equip the 300 Native American students uh, who go to MSU uh, to grow in their confidence, awareness, and flourish while they're at MSU. And Nick and I also happen to go to church together. He is a deacon at Trinity Church here in Bozeman and uh, so I've known Nick for about six years and uh, he's been here longer than I have but Nick thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thanks yeah thanks Craig for having me it's been great to get to know the Dunham family and all the the, uh, wonderful people at Trinity. Before we really start and get into things um, I want to make the caveat that there may be some things that I mess up uh, in even asking questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, one of my first questions is, is it Native American? Is it Indian? What, yeah. what, what, you know, those kinds of things, for me, a white Caucasian, these are things that I'm trying to learn and trying to better understand. And so I want you to feel free that if, if I say something, ask something, or do it in a way that's kind of like, yeah, Craig, that's probably not the best way to say that. You've got freedom to, to, to tell me. But, but, Native American or Indian? What? How do you think about so, that? So yeah, so Native American. There, there I, I think three general uh, categories. There's Native American, which uh, I think uh, that's been more commonly used uh, in you know my lifetime that I know. American Indian actually came from you know the uh, the myth of uh, Christopher Columbus who arrived you know um, in the fourteen in 1492. You know, mistakenly came across the, the Caribbean. Got, you know, landed somewhere in that area on his way to India, right? And then thought like, well, I'm 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 a, I've arrived. So I, these are the Indians that mm-hmm. I, I've been looking for. And the uh, myth is not that Columbus didn't come here, but he thought he was it, going to yeah, India. Yeah, thought he was yeah. going, and he, he discovered you know this new world, which you know, you know later the you know the Puritans and the, you know the, everything else would follow. But that so American Indian, I think, it was where that came from. Okay. And and then the third, uh, there's a third I think is more commonly com- people are more comfortable with is indigenous, mm-hmm. and I think we've we've borrowed that nomenclature from our our brethren, our relatives up north in Canada, because they refer to themselves as First Nations people, or indigenous, mm-hmm. and, and and you know Aborigine or you know it, there it's it somewhat applies to different you know groups of people around the world, but I think indigenous, uh, American Indian. And, and of course, the uh, I don't want to, you know, hopefully I'm not shattering too many uh, glasses, you know, just the ignorance of like even our, our or shatter own, away, yeah, or shatter away our own declaration of independence, you know, it starts, it begins with like we the people. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I believe it's, and then I am like a 
my uncle Mark Charles, he's you know he's an academic. He you know he's he's in the, a lot of these uh, circles. Um, if I think it, I believe it's the twenty third line of the Declaration of Independence where it refers to Indigenous or Native people as merciless Indian savages. Hmm. And so, you know, I don't think for for most of this country's history, I don't think too many people in general knew how to relate to our, our Native populations right. and, and knowing that being able to differentiate between the 576 tribal nations like that's that's a lot and so yeah native american american indian um i you know i'm usually more accustomed to native or indigenous okay. i mean i can use indian um but yeah that's, oh, that's a good that's a good question to ask for sure well like i said th- th- these are just i think th- there are a lot of questions like this that i think people um people get hung up on in and part of it is because they may not feel like they have somebody they can even ask. And yeah. of course, you can go to the internet and you can you know, read that. But I think it's just better when we when we have opportunities. Can we just engage with one another? Again, no, not threatening or judgmental, but just say, help me understand what you know what what you prefer. I mean, what what that needs to look like. And you know more of the history of that than I do. And mm-hmm. so. Um, and as part of that, you, um, just a, a promo for the book review at the end of the month, um, Nick had actually recommended to me a book, uh, I've got it right here, it's called uh, Fool's Crow by James Welch, and this is um, this is a book that uh, is I'm going to be writing a review on for the end of the month, and um, tell me a little bit about why you recommended this to me. Yeah. I know you and I were talking about. Yeah. I was asking you what what were some of your favorite titles that would that really kind of um, help help people understand or sum up your story or your people's story. Tell mm-hmm. me why why this one. So, Fool's Crow is uh, was a novel I was introduced to in college. Um, I had taken you know. Uh, so part of my story is growing up on, on a reservation. I actually. It wasn't much uh, exposure to indigenous thought or indigenous art in, in the in a way that you know that really stood out to me. And and I came to Montana, you know, hundreds of miles away from home. I I, I was even ignorant of of the different tribal peoples here, mm-hmm. indigenous peoples here in Montana. And come to find out, there are there are seven reservations and twelve tribes here in Montana. I I was going through some of uh, my early core classes at uh, Montana State University and I I, became, I came across this professor his name was uh, Greg Keeler and he was big on uh, western literature he was you know like of a kind of a rustic kind of you know he liked to carry on a guitar and he, he, would, he would serenade us sometimes in class <laughs> and he, he had formed this really great relationship with some native people around the state of Montana and um, I remember taking I think it was a uh, I can't remember, it was like a Montana literature class, and I came across uh, this author, James Welch, uh, who, he had passed away uh, younger in life, or, you know, he had cancer and he'd mm-hmm. succumbed to it, but um, he had, he was a, he was a very prolific, he had been a very prolific author, he was a part of what they would call the first renaissance of American Indian literature, and this was back in the 1970s. And some other names that you know are associated like Simon Ortiz or M. Scott Ma- M. Scott Mamaday. And um, the the beauty of of James Welsh is you know he wrote this novel Fool's Crow in in 1986, and it's really a, it's I would put it up there with uh, 100 Years of Solitude. You know Gabriel Gar you know Garcia Mar- or Marquez. Um, you know where that novel kind of tracks the history of Colombia as a nation, while this novel. Fool's Crow is in part a history of the Blackfeet people mm-hmm. of what you know James Walsh is, is a descendant of. Um, he's I think he's both Blackfeet and he has ties to the Fort Belknap Reservation, which is also along the High Line here in Montana. And um, you know it's it's very mesmerizing. It's very uh, detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that a lot of these names and places in the novel are actual people. Um, their descendants still carry their names. Mm. The, the places, uh, the the way he identifies, and just creates this world is is very very much still a, um, a reality. Mm. And um, 
so the, I, that I was like, it's, it's, you know, deals with a lot of, you know, hard stuff, you know, colonization, settler invasion, intrusion, you know, but it's, it really is like a coming of age story mm-hmm. of, a, of a young man. And, um, I think that personally resonated with me, but that, you know, when I, when people ask me, I think that's one of the first two novels or pieces of literature that I, I constantly recommend is like Fool's Crow and, um, there, there's another one, but I, that's, that, that it's, I've read, I reread, I try to read this novel like once a year and it just is, it just is, it becomes more, uh, captivating mm. each time I read it. So that, you know, that's the plug I have for the book. Um, and I think that's why I recommended it to you. Yeah. I'm about a hundred pages into it already. And it's, it really is fascinating. The, the names and yeah. you know, the Indian names, which to me is just, it's so poetic in the way that, um, names are chosen and represent and and yeah. i guess sometimes too do do they grow out of and names are changed Did yeah they... so that uh, so there's a little anecdote personally um do you have an indian name i don't that's actually what i was just okay. about to speak on okay so there's this thing uh, this is a theme and in, in a lot of uh you know tribal communities where certain maybe call them rites of passages or certain accomplishments may may happen in, in especially a young person's life because you got to remember this day and age in the 1880s when this when this novel was written and there was said and were said yep. you know um you know life expectancies weren't that you know that high mm-hmm. and I, you know i think that was you know just the reality so it wasn't uncommon for especially a, a young man or young woman to 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 achieve certain things like uh uh, and to be bestowed a certain a, a name or to grow into an uh, you know it's like a it's an identity like a very uh like new creation type thing and mm-hmm. i think you know well, as you get into the novel you know his name will change uh from white man's dog that's his name originally right. and then it'll grow into you know fool's girl mm-hmm. um and so i part of my story is when i left the reservation at 18 uh, it was kind of in haste, uh, not under the best circumstances, but I wasn't, I had, you know, be, being young, I, I so hastily kind of departed and I had denied not only myself, but my family, my community, that honor and privilege of, of giving me that kind mm. of name. Well, it's been some years later, uh, just this, the summer of 2021, one of my uncles, uh, who's very dear and near to me, um, asked me that point blank. He's like, did you ever get a name? Did mm. we ever give you a name? And I was like, no. And so that has become a priority of my family. Uh, is, you know, hopefully in the next year or two that I can go home and, and celebrate that with my community and my family. Uh, because I, I, I like to think that, you know, the life that I'm living and the journey and the path that I'm on here uh, is reflective of, of, a, of a way that, you know, bestows and brings honor to them, you mm. know, because I, you know, it's not just for me, I'm doing it for them. So, to, to your question, do I have an Indian name? I actually don't. So, yeah. Uh, I want to be there when they yeah. name you. I mean, is, is that something that... You know, that... Or is that a, that a family thing? You know, that that, that is the... Uh, I think the difficulty, I think modern technology may be able to help us out. But I, I mean, but <laughs> I... can stream it? I can stream it, you know. Okay. But because Trinity and the Bozeman community... Uh, has become so integral to my life. I, you know, there, there was, there's, uh, it's difficult to imagine not having you guys be a part of that somehow. So, okay. Well, keep me posted on that. Yeah. That's, that's interesting to me. Now let's, let's go back. You talk about growing up on the reservation. I mean, walk me through that yeah. story. What, what, what do you remember? What do you recall? What were the significant things? You said you left in haste. I'm guessing yeah. there's a story there, yeah. but tell us a little bit about that. So, um, so my people, the Yakima, the Confederated Tribes and bands of the Yakima people is actually a group of 14 you know, bands of people. We were, um, we were, we signed the treaty on June 9th of 1855. It was us, uh, the Nez Perce people, so mm-hmm. Joseph, Chief jo- Joseph, he was actually, he was there. Uh, the Umatilla people, the Warm Springs people. Um, and we, so the 1855, this, you know, right before the Civil, American Civil War, uh, Isaac Stevens uh, was the, the territori- territorial governor of, of that. And he, you know, he, he was an army veteran and 
you know, he wanted to have the, this gathering because of the experience of the of the U.S. government and the army with the Plains people. All the Plains, you know, here in uh, Montana and the Dakotas, you know, we call them the Indian Wars. Mm-hmm. They they understood how formidable uh, Native peoples could be, and so they they were trying to find ways to fast track or to. Uh, minimize you know the, their loss of resources and, and and whatnot and so when they came to us in the pacific northwest you know they they under they were they, they became students of the region they understood like well the, the these people the yakima people and the other peoples their natural resources aren't the same whereas the plains indians will look at the bison as their primary means of resource these coastal northwest people it's salmon salmon mm. and root and berry gathering so they 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 cataloged and knew i think a lot from the lewis and clark expedition mm-hmm. they, you know they took note from that and like okay we know what resources to exploit and so when they when they brought us to the to the table so to speak and said like we know that these x you know these places marked out here are where you guys you know are uh, that's where you get your food. That's where you, yeah, that's where commerce is conducted. And so they knew to right up front to kind of strong arm that. And, you know, we had, you know, my ancestors knowing their, having known the, the history and the experience that they had here, like, okay, well, we, we, sh- we got to be, try to be wise and prudent because we don't want to be, you don't want, we don't want to disappear in a hundred years. Mm-hmm. And so we signed the treaty knowing full well that, you know, there's, we're going to, we're going to lose you know a huge amount of land base um and we're gonna you know we you know we have a year to move into the reservation which you know that's what it became and it was the almost the least desirable part of the country we were giving up and the 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 government the the territory was like we're gonna make these people farmers and agricultural people and uh we weren't agricultural farmer farming people so eventually the turn of the century, uh, you, you know, abject poverty, destitution, what what have you, uh, high infant mortality, you know, just a, just a, a shock within a lifetime, within a generation of uh, a, a loss of light, a, lo- a loss of uh, rhythm or uh, liturgy, you know, mm-hmm. ceremonial, cultural, you know, like we were kind of figuring that out and so they ended up bringing in a filipino population and a hispanic population and they became the farmers and the and the agriculturalists and so we we have since coexisted with our people um and that brings me you know kind of back into the, the 20th century where i come in um my my uh mother's father's name was edward charles ross and um he is uh he was enrolled quinault uh, and by way of his uh, occupation, he was a laborer. He uh, was a timber timber faller. He was a logger. He was a short, short, stout man. And then he, he, you see me in person, you're like, "How did that happen?" Because I'm I'm by far the largest member of my family. <laughs> um, but he he moved over to the Yakima Valley, and the story goes um, in his coming of coming of age years. Uh, from like 12 to 13 on up to like 16 he had two brothers my my two great uncles my two grandpas they were these healthy young men running around the kind of mountains the the hillside of of the quinault valley the quinault reservation uh, some of these communities in what part of washington so this this would be a tohola uh so it'd be like on the olympic the olympic peninsula kind of up toward seattle okay and um the uh, the Indian agents, you know, are, are paternal guardians, and uh, I call them cronies, but it's really their employees. They they were they were seeing this, understanding, you know, this is the mid nineteen the mid twentieth century, and you're like, you know, they control the resources, the flow of resources, commodities, and goods that come in and out of the, the reservation communities on the west coast there, and it was you know kind of the same thing on the Yakima reservation. But they couldn't get over seeing these these three kind of sturdy, uh, healthy boys running around. And like, why? How did we miss them? You know, because they would do a, like a census count or a head count, and like, who are these three boys? And um, they've come to find out there was this older uh, Quinault woman, my great great grandmother. Her name was Louise Ayel, and she uh, she did not speak a word of English. Uh, she spoke her tribal language. 
and she lived in a little kind of caddy rundown hut, hut house made out of cedar plank you know and she, you know she would send the boys out to kind of uh help harvest food get fish you know just hunt off the land that kind of thing well the government agents uh caught wind of this and they they managed to trick the boys into coming into town for something i think it you know I, as the story goes i it was something that you know it was, i think it was probably food related or a way to prey on their their uh ignorance to like well we're, we're trying to help you help your grandma so they snatched the boys up they sent them up to a, a an infirmary school in in aberdeen washington which is nearby on the peninsula and um so it was almost like a day boarding school um which was an uncommon practice at that point to send indian children off to native children and eventually one night i don't know what happened um i've, I've actually been trying to do research on on this record of the, the infirmary school actually caught fire and and uh the, the the employees they you know for whatever reason maybe it was panic or maybe they just didn't really you know feel they are heartened enough to help all the children in there but my my, my grandpa and his two brothers you know these kids they were literally helping you know shuffle young mm. children out of the burning building so you know so they you know they wouldn't die and so you know that is kind of you know that is you know my that's at least two generations and then it you know it, it, this is kind of the the story of intergener intergenerational trauma historical trauma or you know that's like the noble you know part of my family that where it's where it starts and then uh my mother uh, she's an only child i uh, fell in love um, with, uh, with my father on the Yakima reservation. And it's kind of a tale of, uh, it's almost Shakespearean where my father came from a very prominent tribal family. His, his, his father was a, a decorated Vietnam veteran. He had multiple children. He, you know, they spoke Yakima Sahoptin, which is the name of our language that, you know, they practice some of the religious and ceremonial things really well where my mother and her father who you know his his rough kind of rustic upbringing and his lifestyle um they he was a kind of a vagabond scullywag he, he enjoyed he had a, a family operation where they smuggled cigarettes and and bootlegged you know uh moonshine you know that, that's the kind of cast of characters that <laughs> i came from but um it was almost a but you know the family the proud family lived right here and then the scully wake uh single father you know dug a dug a hole in the ground put a well in put a little single you know little single wide trailer says i'm gonna raise my daughter and that was my mother and so that's how my mother and father kind of came to be and it, you know it was almost not quite like forbidden love but it was highly frowned upon you know they eventually became like high school sweethearts mm. but there was a lot of things that they had to unpack um my mother herself was was orphaned and abandoned at a young age. My my grandfather took it upon himself to take her to to some of his relatives further down the road on the reservation. So like I am not capable of taking care of this little girl. Hmm. Before we put her in the system, this is before you know, ICWA, and I'll explain what that is. Um, you know, would it be would it be permissible for for her to be with you? And you know, it was you know I'm not going to turn children down. So you know, that side of my family took her in, but she grew up kind of sorting through a lot of her identity issues. Like you know, am, am I uh, I'm an I'm an orphan child, but I also have a mother. I have siblings, half brothers and sisters that live like literally ten miles up the road. I have nothing. I have no idea who they are. Mm -hmm. She became a runaway multiple times because, you know, some of the abuse she experienced. Uh, and then, you know, as a teenager, you know, trying to unpack that. And, you know, this family, this young man, this, you know, who, who, loves, who, who loved her. Some days, I think it was just more of a comfort thing. You know, they, they it was for better or worse, that's that's just how they ended up. And then I came. I came along. I'm, I'm my mother's second oldest child, so I'm, I'm, I have an older brother. Um, I'm, I'm a three-month preemie. And that's another thing that shocks people. I was born three months premature. Um, and I just began my life, uh, I think, you know, I'd, and no child ever wants to think that, you know, they're a, a stumbling block for their parent. But, you know, I think my mother, she was 20 years old when she had me. Um, just had a lot. She already had a you know, son. I was probably classified as special needs. And, um, you, just you know the the i don't want to say inconvenience inconveniences but just the resilience that i think you know we all had to have at that point was was really hard it could be overwhelming 
And eventually I entered the foster care system because of a broken relationship with between my mother and her mother. Well, my grandmother who raised me thought she knew better. You know, maybe she was seeking that redemption. Like, I want, I can do this better now. I'm older. She was educated at that point. Like, I can raise that little boy better than you can. And mind you that these are two people that didn't really know each other. Mm. They, didn't, they didn't have their history. They, you know, they had their own history. They had their own resentments. They had their own uh, disagreements. But somehow I got put in the middle of that, me and my brother. I ended up with my grandmother uh, at the age of three. I entered the foster care system. And one of the, the it, was, it was a landmark piece of legislation. It's called the Indian Child Welfare uh, Act. It mm -hmm. was enacted in 1978. And one of the stipulations is that in order for a, 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 native, a native child to kind of maintain that connection with their, their uh, family of origin, and usually it's the community of origin, there needs to be a cultural piece to that. And my grandmother, uh, who was an edu edu who was an educator, school counselor, like, well, this is brand new. This is pretty nifty. We can figure this out. We can manipulate some scenarios where this child, where we can keep him engaged with this culture. Uh, preying on the the the, the uh, lack of education, the lack of resources that my young mother had. You know, she's like, I have that. I can. I can. We can make this happen. And so it was a very strained relationship. Um, I had a lot, I needed a lot of care and attention. I was developmentally, you know, I, I wasn't functioning as a child. I you couldn't walk. I, you know, I could barely sit up on my own. I wasn't able, I, I could not articulate vocally. I can, you know, just really was behind the, behind the ball. And eventually, um, I got to a point where all that worked itself out. And then about age eight, seven and eight, I was, uh, violently abused, mm. um, sexually abused, uh, by other foster children. And that just sent me off on a path of, uh, I guess, the redemption that I'm in now. And um, we can talk about this a little bit more. But, um, you know, from that age on to high school, I think I just really struggled with, uh, you know, I had suicidality. You know, I had the best, I know, the best care. You know, I was in and out of seeing school psychologists, school counselors. You know, I had educational, individual education plans. You know, people were very attentive to me, but it always didn't feel like it was enough. And then I decided to branch off. Uh, and, and, you know, this was 2005. I, I heavily had considered going into the military because, you know, we, we had just started, you know, uh, war in Iraq and, you know, knowing Afghanistan was coming around. I had asked my uh, family's permission, like, you know, just uh, out of honor, like, do you think it'd be good for me to go into the military? And they're like, no. And so I was like, well, my very, very uh, limited worldview. I had, I had never really traveled outside the reservation. I had no exposure to any other cultures or, or anything. I was like, well, I guess college is the, the only other game in town. So with the help of uh, one of the many non-native advocates in my life, you know, I had, I had employers, I had educators and teachers who, who were non-native at the high school and the community that, and the coaches that really saw that potential. Um, like, well, maybe you should think about college. And so I graduated high school in June of 2005, uh, aged out of the foster care system, and then I was homeless. Um, and I had to reconnect with my estranged mother at that point. Mm. Like, I need, a, I need a couch to to sleep on until I start college, whatever that whatever that is, because I had no idea of being a first gen college student and just the, the the crazy adventure and journey that would be. So that's kind of you know my upbringing on mm. the reservation and. And because of, you know, the cultural connection, I was able to grow up um, connected to my, you know, to my people. I, I heard, I would go to this, you know, we call it a longhouse, but it's like a house of worship where I heard my language spoke. I heard, you know, prayers spoke in my language. I, you know, I, I dress in my, my regalia, I, you know, we'd worship and, you know, it, it's big on uh, hospitality. So we would uh, commemorate, memorialize uh, seasons of, Thanksgiving, where we would re reflect on our creation story as a people and the sacrifices of, of our animal and food, berry and food relatives. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of neat to think about now, but I was very, I'm, I'm very grateful that I, I grew up with that connection. Um, and then just coming into the abyss that is uh, this other world, I think is what really, I think, and we can, I'll, I'll pause, but that's kind of the, that, mm. uh, that is kind of the journey that yeah. brought me to Montana. Thanks for sharing all that. Uh, how important were, so that connection, was that important to you then, or is it more that as you look back, 
you could see the importance of that in terms of the cultural connection with your people. So back then, it wasn't as important, and I, I, I say this very self-aware. Like I, I, um, I you know, I, I, I couldn't. I did. I just didn't think I had the, the the intellectually, the emotional, the spiritual capacity to to appreciate that um, because I was in survival mode. And uh, that that seems typical for younger generations of native indigenous kids isn't it in terms of growing up they don't speak the language they may have a connection with a a grandparent Mm -hmm. who who does speak the language but it's not spoken in the home per se is that accurate yeah and i think uh, a lot of that stems from the, the legacy of like residential boarding schools where that was either literally kind of beaten out of them or they mm-hmm. were strongly discouraged from speaking their language where the, you know the uh, you know i remember i can't remember what it was it was a prominent american le- military leader even a president who said the 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 the, the best kind of indian is a dead indian mm. you know and so you know you, you let that sink in like wow you know I don't know if I could, you know, the, you know, just the mindset, but yeah, I, th- I think, you know, that that's the, the symptom of uh, intergenerational trauma. And one big piece of this I, I've learned about in the last few years is, um, so you think of a significant place, you know, history, you know, if you're a history buff, you think of, uh, you know, I know back East, they, you know, they, they, they have the, the battlefields that they can remember. Even here in Montana, you have the little bighorn battlefield sure. where you can look at it from different perspectives. For us, for the Yakima people, there's this place along the Columbia River. It's called, uh, it was originally called Salila Falls. Salila Falls is like our Mecca. It's like our temple. You know, if we were to, you know, if we were to look at it from an indigenous perspective, like the Hebrew people are, you know, it's like uh, a place where my ancestors would, would, uh, they would make their pilgrimage to every year because that was where commerce, that's where ceremony was, uh, you know, traded and enacted. That's where we got, you know, our abundance, you know, the where we would give thanks and, and meditate on the goodness of, of the Creator. You know? Well, in the Columbia River, yeah. I mean, that's beautiful. It is beautiful. It is a beautiful river. And then in the 1950s, they actually dammed it. They dammed that sacred site. Um, and that's now where the Dells Dam sits. Mm-hmm. And the, I, you know, I, I read through the historical, the legal, kind of the legal and historical, um, you know documentation how ugly that was that you know that's you know that's something that's even still prevalent here in the 21st century in 2016 there was the huge uprising in uh, north dakota north and south dakota cannonball you know the the dakota access pipeline trying to you know blaze way through the through the reservation and so that is a, a you know that is a historical that is a historical trauma and you know when that happened there's record of, of indigenous people native people yakima people they were so mortified by what was happening they literally turned their bodies in tears because they could not watch stand to watch that uh, sacred site being damned and that's within my again that's within my grandparents' lifetime you know and so when you go about that unspoken you know that's that's a grief or that's that's a lament that doesn't really ever kind of get there and it affects you know the children and grandchildren and to the point of these are things that i didn't i wished i'd known maybe I'm, i wasn't ready to know that when i was a child or a teenager but now that like okay that that makes sense um so that you know that connection those connections and in spite of all that and even in spite of my own community my own family's misgivings i was able to stay connected to that and that's something i in hindsight i, I often mm-hmm. thank god for it's it's interesting that you're talking about the damming of that that site on the river um i think back to i in, in 2009 i was teaching high school at a christian high school in st louis and we had a program called the Summer Seminar where we brought about 20, 25 uh, high school seniors out to South Dakota. We also did a trip to Washington as well, but the South Dakota one was the first one that I went on. And the whole idea of the trip was a study of Shalom, the biblical idea of Shalom, that is the way things ought to be. Um, it, it, it's it's a beautiful concept and idea and yet it's so fleeting in our world in so many different ways and we were looking at the ethics particularly with regard to 
a lot of the tribes that were in South Dakota, you know, at the time, uh, or back back in the day, and still, but then also looking at the history and the science, and so the whole theme was was worked around this idea of shalom. What does shalom look like? What could it have looked like? What what will it be um, when Christ returns? But um, I remember one day, and it was really good planning by the folks who put this together. Uh, we we went in the morning. We went to uh, broken or wounded knee, mm-hmm. and so we went to wounded knee. You know, people talk about the battle of wounded knee. It, I mean, it's a massacre of wounded knee in terms of just the the indigenous population just wiped out there. And what was really interesting was the the the, the cemetery that was there. It. I mean, it was, it's very compact. It's very small. It's not fancy. There's a chain link fence around it. Um, that's about it, you know. And I think people have wanted to do more for it, but the the peoples there have said no. This that's not our way of of you know building up some big memorial kind of thing. So that morning, we we took the kids to Wounded Knee and we had them. Uh, meditate and write, you know, what their thoughts were as, as they, because they had done some reading leading up to it and Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee was a book that, you know, mm-hmm. we, the instructors we had read. And then that afternoon we took them over, it was about an hour and a half over, I think, to Mount Rushmore, which what we were trying to bring the juxtaposition on was here's the colonial perspective of honoring you know, four presidents. Um, it's it's a huge memorial. It's you know it's very built up, and I don't know if you've been to Mount Rushmore or not, but um, it was just really interesting for the kids to see the difference between how the people had been memorialized, and it was very eye opening for me as well. I'd never been to Mount Rushmore before, but it really. You know, I, I kept looking at the, the the rocks, and it's amazing in terms of the the uh, you know the sculpture work that went on to put those faces on the rocks. But at the same time, for the the indigenous people, they look at that as that's you know that's an abomination of of creation. And I've always wondered. One of the questions I, that came out of that for me is I've always wondered when when Christ comes again and the world is restored, does Mount Rushmore go away and all those pieces of rock go back up to be, you know, to be restored? And it's just interesting to think about because to a, a Caucasian American, well, yes, these are some four of our greatest leaders, right? Mm-hmm. And yet it's there's such a different perspective in terms of the indigenous population of, but you desecrated this you know, this, this part of nature and this rock. And I don't know, it just reminds me a little bit of your story with the, the, you know, for them, they're probably thinking Hey, this is the best use of the river. Yeah. And that was very opposite of how your people had viewed it at the time. Yeah. I, I remember reading, uh, different periodicals, uh, like you know, this is progress. Yeah. You know, like, you know, well, it's always in the name yeah, of progress. Yeah. You know, like you, this is, uh, you know, this is an opportunity to, you know, a boom in, in, in commerce and trade and, you know, civilization and all that. But by all accounts, the, even the, the non-native people in that area struggled to adapt because it became, you know, it was such a boom town. But then it became a ghost town. Mm. And then there was, there's always the collateral damage, right? And it, it was everyone. I remember there's even... Uh, you know, not to get too, but there, 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 uh, there were signs in the town of um, the Dells, where it says no dogs allowed or Indians. Mm. You know, in, the, in these establishments. You know, that's you know, so like, the equation of yeah, the two. Yeah, yeah, you know, no, no dogs or Indians allowed, and it's like that's. And they probably would have allowed the dogs before they would yeah, have allowed they would, the Indians. Yeah, yeah. And so. Um, uh, I'm sorry for that, Nick. I mean, that's yeah. it's just heartbreaking. I think. When you think of trying to look through the lens of shalom, the yeah. way things ought to be, there's so many things like that that you, you just want to point at and say, I, I don't think that's one of them, you know? Yeah. And 
Um, well, so you, you come from the reservation, you come to Montana. Um, how'd you end up here? What, what was the attraction? So, uh, you know, it, I think it's, it was a totally, uh, a God thing. I mean, I had no, I, again, I had no meaningful connection to Montana. I, I mean, I remember driving through the state at one point in my youth. I had no idea about Gallatin County. I had no idea, you know, Southwest Montana and the Yellowstone National Park, you know, the recreation, all the, all that. I just, you know, it's like, well, I, I'm going to apply to these colleges and I kind of want to see who will accept me first. Mm. And being a first gen student, um, just being totally ignorant about the whole process, I, you know, I got accepted to MSU and I came and, uh, you know, didn't have a, I didn't have a housing assignment when I first moved out here. I didn't know anybody. Uh, they were like, who's this kid and how did he end up here? And he's going to take care of him kind of thing. And it became a very collective uh, effort from the, the staff at Montana State to, to kind of get me going. And even at that, it, it took a year or two even just to get comfortable. Um, mm -hmm. For me, you know, moving into a dorm, a housing assignment was like the most stable, you know, environment I could have. And that was that was debilitating you know i had a roof a roof over my head i had access to two or three square meals a day like that was uh that was as good as life was getting and i just remember stumbling through and just being aware of who i who i who i was you know and i'm not saying you know like there was the privilege which there was or there was you know just being in a world uh, in it, you know what it felt to really feel like to stick out you know I didn't have access to I didn't know basic things about what it meant to be in higher education and um, and as I as I you know stayed here I, I think you know to that point of like I what does Shalom look like for me because I think that that was one of the most apparent things that became just glaringly obvious when I left uh, home is how broken I was and how broken my family, what my family origin was, how broken my community was. And, and it was really discouraging. I mean, as an 18, 19 year old, you know, you don't, I didn't have the categories to kind of be in that space. And so one of the, you know, things, you know, I just kind of staggered and stumbled through my, my, my day-to-day -day life on campus. And I just like, I, I just don't want, I felt like such an imposter. Like, mm. yeah, I don't belong here. Mm. And, um, the grace that was given to me is well, my first semester of college, I met a, a gal who was in my bowling class of all things. <laughs> and she, you know, very hospitable and very sweet. And, you know, we were teammates and, uh, she's like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm starting this Bible study for, and it's just, it's just for native people. And she really had to emphasize that. Like, was I, she native? She's not. Native. She's not. Okay. And, uh, you know, I had being totally ignorant. I was like, I don't, I mean, okay the bible I, I know something about that and i don't know enough to not like it or to like it and i know there's a history there so i show i showed up to to peaser more than anything i you know i was i think i was more there for the snacks <laughs> and uh you know i did that for one or two weeks and then i just kind of disappeared because i i was in being in that space kind of being uh you know there's this uh this very prominent author um shamamada ngozi uh Adichie, she, you know, she writes, she wrote a novel called Americana, and she gave this TED Talk about, you know, they titled it The Danger of a Single Story. It's like one of the, and I remember her saying one of the, if you want to dispossess a people, you, you tell their story. And I thought, well, okay, what does that mean? And I mean, this, I didn't watch this back then, but I, I've just watched it a few times. But if, you know, what does it mean to be dispossessed? And I remember growing up, of my my own story like i had to dispossess the caretakers the, the the adults in my family or i had to dispossess the educators who were taking care of me i had to dispossess like my own brothers and sisters my own mother and father because that's the only way i feel like i could survive you know mm -hmm. i do i was i you know I'd, I'd been so exploited and dehumanized on some level that i felt like that's what i had to do to other people's and i just remembered going through life dispossessing people because like i i want to tell my version of theirs of, of my story and their story through my eyes and that's easier to do 
and so that I couldn't do that when I came to college. And so it's like, I'm hurting. I'm, I'm lonely. I've, you know, I've this trauma. I, I have all this stuff and I'm trying to grow and, and learn in academia and it's not working. You know, it's so much piled onto, you know, one soul that I, I, I needed an outlet and uh, needed, you know, the catharsis and all that. Um, and eventually I came to uh, this Bible study called Nations, which Nations is a part of crew. And uh, it's, it's a ministry focused primarily on reconciliation of, of First Nations and Native peoples. It's brand new in 2005, and I actually, going through that journey, I, like, I can't, you know, I can't, con I can't continue to demean myself, and I can't continue to just continue to be angry. I didn't like being the victim. I, don't like, I didn't like playing that card. And if you were to tell me, uh, hindsight, that I, I was going to break generational cycles of trauma and addiction, like, I knew I couldn't turn to those because I, I'd seen the, the devastating effects, but then also realizing the effect of that it was having on my body. I mean, I have type 2 diabetes. I, it's ravaged my own, like, heart where I've had that stints put in, mm -hmm. you know, and so it's not like I, I have paid for my own you know, choices and the things that have done to me, but it's like, there has to be something else. There has to be a, a better way. And so I remember going to the nations and I remember seeing my peers, uh, one, one gal in particular who was an older nursing student. It's like, we have the same exact story. You know, this is as much as I try, like if, you know, it's like a kind of a, a perverse one upsmanship or like, I you know <laughs> my life is worse than your life. You know, we, and I would try to, you know, look, compare our lives, but it's like, there's something different about you. Like you're still hopeful. You're still joyful. You, you can't shut up about Jesus and God like that. You know, I'm like, okay, that's, um, I'll give you that. And so just, and just, but just the lovingness that she, the, the hospitality that she had, you know, for creating that space for me, it just really began to break those barriers down. And that's eventually how I came to faith. And I, that's really when, uh, I decided like, well, you know, Jesus, I remember like, I don't know, I Jesus is a pretty big deal and, and understanding, not knowing the, the history of colonization and missions mm -hmm. with, with native peoples. Like, it was purely an act of faith, you know, like, I don't know, Jesus, I hear you're a lot of things, you know, I, and I was too scared to read the Bible, even at that point, and I was like, Jesus, you know, just be my friend. Mm -hmm. I remember just saying that constantly, like, Jesus, just be my friend, because I don't know. I'm, I'm all out, you know, I, I, life has given me this, I, you know, I'm out, I'm out a mom, I'm out a dad, I'm out my siblings, I'm out my adopted, you know, family, I, I've been given the best care from social care workers to school counselors to psychologists, I got, I've, I've been, I've run into the end of my rope, I have nothing, mm. and I have nothing to offer, you know, and, you know, on the one hand you feel that, that it was a feeling of shame, but such a freedom that came with that because like well now now, I, now i'm gonna give it to you mm. and turned out to be uh, quite life-changing from mm. that point on so that was a great story yeah and so you you were involved with crew how did you get involved with trinity so the the couple the, uh, that leads the ministry here and in, in montana state uh they had been long they were they are longtime members of what was then galton valley presbyterian mm -hmm. And the cool thing that simultaneously happened uh, right at that time of college and just uh, getting connected to, to Trinity um, was I, I, I'd like to think I am an introvert. I used to think like, you know, I, I don't know if it was cliche, but I, because of being so awkward and not being kind of uh, conversant, I, it was hard for me to be in spaces with people where I could like meaningfully interact. And so I thought like, well, I just that's just how I am, you know, and, and as I, as I grew and I began the healing from everything, one thing I, and I started getting involved with, with different organizations on campus and going to Trinity, I realized, uh, very profoundly that I like people. Mm. And, um, one of the ways that t uh, tangibly worked itself out is I, I just started to volunteer, um, at Trinity, like, you know, and set up and tear down, uh, you know, I you know I had a great friend. Uh, he, he was instrumental. His name was uh, his name is Leesman. He was a graduate student at MSU in computer science, and I didn't have a means of transportation. So he, you know, just that faithfulness of him showing up and taking me to this uh, college and career group at Trinity, and then taking me to Sunday worship, kind of really you know uh, 
just reinforce like, well, this is where I need to be. This is my shalom, you know. And and I loved MSU, but just the 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 the, the love and attention that I got from the folks at Trinity really stuck out and i really had to i had to invest in that like if i want to if i want to be known then i get you know i have to be visible Mm -hmm. and eventually that led to uh you know my baptism and uh you know it's still awkward you know weird because i feel like i'm still in these two worlds even in my my profession that i do now and then being a part of trinity but i just you know i i really had to work at it and that was something i was willing to put time and energy into like well if i want to know these people if i want to love these people i, I gotta kind of you know have that create that space for them to, to be able to interact with me and i just learned like i i like i like people and so naturally i i started to get outside my comfort zone i started trying to be more personable like how do i how do i ask good questions how do i how do I, you know do i do i smile do i be how do i be look friendly because you know it's imposing as I look you know it's like I, I, I I'm here I, I want to be part of this community um and I didn't I didn't know how long I would be mm-hmm. at Trinity um eventually that led to you know the the journey to to leadership and mm-hmm. um so that's kind of how I, that's really how I got connected um by by God's grace this is the one church I've been a part of in my entire Christian life and it's been so uh a healing so rewarding and, and all that so I've been I've prayed and cried and just been you know overjoyed about how how good like god has been to me in that regard Mm -hmm. so well and i since i've known you nick i mean i've never i've never known you to play the 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 sympathy card the race card the 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 native card any of those things even though i mean if you look at your life I mean, there's a lot of things that you could point to, and you could even go back, I mean, just with your ancestors, if you think of the way Christianity was abused in so mm-hmm. much of the colonialism coming west. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess for me, it, there's just such a beauty of the redemption of your story in that you're now part of a Christian church serving as a deacon, an elected office, to a vastly white church community city community state i mean bozeman is i don't know what the reads like 94 percent white and yet you're 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 coming in and you're you're giving back and 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 god has called you almost to it it, there's, there's just a lot of redemption there to me i mean just seeing how god has worked and redeemed in your life and then also, I think the way that you responded, I think that's the thing that is so beautiful is, you know, you didn't try to work your way towards something. You just said, I give up. Yeah. <laughs> and and people came around you and the gospel, you know, you, you, you grabbed hold of that by faith. And it just seems like that's a, I mean, that's the way it's, that's shalom. That's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And, and one thing I, I know is people ask me constantly, it's like, well, how did your family respond to all this? Yeah. You know, knowing that there were severed ties, that it was kind of always been a unstable element in my life. Well, so early on, I, when I came to faith, my, my mother certain family members were not happy about it. They had more of a, a Catholic upbringing or a, a tribal or agnostic upbringing where, you know, the, you know, the, I remember my mother telling me straight out, like, I'd prefer you be Catholic. Mm. And I had no idea what that meant. I was like, hey, what does that even mean? Mm. And, uh, you know, I'd get teased and mocked by, you know, people I respected in my family. Like, are you still doing that Christian thing? You know, I was like, I don't know if that's a, it's, I'm not sure that's a phase from, from all indicators. It seems like it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing that's going to be lifelong. And then even the tension I felt on this end of it, you know, there are members and people of Trinity that I, I love and adore and respect, but they were always, they, they've been kind of reticent or, or kind of not as, as uh, open to me even maintaining a connection with my community back home or my family because they, they, they equate that as like, that was so bad for you. Mm. That was so toxic for you. Mm. That was so unhealthy for you. Why would you want to maintain that? And just like what you said, Craig, like, I, you know, I'm, I don't, you know, maybe it's my own ignorance, but it's like, it's not for me to decide, Mm -hmm. you know, and and one part of the big aspect of my healing, um, 
is I've come to forgive, you know, my family and the, the perpetrators who, who violently exploited me. Like I, that, and that some years ago, that I couldn't do that. Mm. Like I, I, I wish no ill on them. You know, I, I wish they they have just as a, a meaningful, purposeful life as as I can. Um, and you know, I but that's I think that's been helpful because it's it's helped matured my faith. Uh, and still, even in the work I do, working with all the, the young Native people, Indigenous people that I do now, like that's something I, I rely on heavily. I mean, there, there are days I've come out of meetings or work like, Lord, I don't think I can do this much longer. Like, you have to, you have to do this because mm-hmm. I can't do it. And that's, on the one hand, uh, that's kind of the exhaustion of, you know, breaking cycles of trauma and, and, and addiction and cycles of, you know, it's just, it just, life just feels a little heavier some days, but I, I think I'm learning to have healthy strategies of dealing with that. Um, is that what you, as you work with those students, is that primarily what you're dealing with? Yeah, it is. I mean, so I, I work with, let's well, 800, actually about 800. Oh, 800, not yeah, 300. 300. I mean, okay. 300, yeah, it's either way, it's still impressive. <laughs> and so the office I work with, there's, there's three of us. Uh, we serve all Native students. That's 57 tribal nations represented at MSU, the region, Montana. And my role primarily is to facilitate and create community. Um, and that can be in the form of uh, new student programming. We, I work a lot with admissions and recruiting. That could be in the form of tutoring. I actually uh, I oversee our tutoring program. But a lot of it is advocacy work. Where, you know, I'm working with uh, counseling and psychological services or the dean of students. We need to deal with some really messy sensitive disciplinary issues i'm working with the housing scholarships financial aid i have to be well somewhat versed in all those areas because Mm -hmm. when a a student comes to me it's like well maybe it's gotten serious enough where they they they're struggling to navigate what we what we would call achievement and preparation gaps and my job is to close the gap and when they get here to msc but then to also turn around and, and have create meaningful programming and community where they can flourish um and so it's like working with them has really made me reflect on my own my own journey, my own process. It's like, well, am I reacting out of out of fear or anger of my own situation, or is that an area I can hopefully speak some wisdom into their life? Like, hey, I I, I know what that feels like, and it you know it seems like it's tough right now, but you, know, you just gotta you know what are the small victories? What are the, what are the tangible things we can do to to kind of get you through this? And so, and a lot of times it is navigating. You know, they come from broken homes as well. Like mom's addicted on, to meth, or dad has an alcoholism problem, or they're, they're, they're primary caregivers for their siblings, you know, and they're just worrying about trying to put food on the table and not even thinking about, like, college life. and Even while they're in college. Yeah, and so um, that's, that, that is a lot of the work I do, and I, I think uh, it's deeply uh, enriching and totally rewarding. I mean, just some of the work, uh, some of the highlights of the work I've done, um, you know, I... One of the areas that I, I really uh, is a gift for me, and I, I think you might appreciate this, is the ability to articulate and write. So mm-hmm. I've written recommendation letters for a, a single mother who's now in law school. Mm-hmm. I've written you know re- another recommendation letter for uh, another mom who's gone, who's working full time at MSU and got this huge prestigious fellowship for being in education or in, in some of the bridge building. I've developed, you know, the, helped develop this tutoring program where now the, the, the guy, the young man who, who uh, started it is now, he's all he's been named a Truman and a Marshall Scholar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the work he's done with our community has changed his trajectory so much that he, he's working now in Alaska at a, at a formerly BIA-run boarding school. Where next year he'll go into, uh, he'll go study at Cambridge and he wants to study rural health and medicine and come back to Montana and serve you know in rural medicine with our tribal communities and you know just because he sees the he sees the value in the work that we're doing yeah. um so you, you know you know these themes of like a redeemed life and you know I've, I've been working my job current job for like almost four years and it's just like that's that's all god you know like mm-hmm. I, I, I the gifts he gives me I, I definitely try to show up and you know being a part of trinity um you know is like wow i get to be a part of that mm-hmm. so well, this I just really appreciate your story, Nick, and just the way you've just honestly spoken about you know your life and your family, and I think what God has done in the midst of 
just a lot of messiness and a lot of brokenness and yet it's it's just obvious that God has has pulled you out of that and put you around people who love you in order to go back into it you know yeah. it's 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 not the kind of thing that you're running from um it's it's something that's part of your story and um I just I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing with us, and I wanted to let you know. I think, and I, I mean this in the best way. I more coming. I'm I'm not a, a fellow tribesman, but I as a Christian brother, I think I've got your Indian name for you. <laughs> okay. You ready? Uh, all right. Uh, lay it on me. Lives by Shalom. Huh. Well, that's that. I mean, that's it seems apt and appropriate, so I appreciate that. Okay, yeah. well, if you need a suggestion, you can use that one. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I can, I'll float that by my elders. Okay, so, you yeah. do that. All right, All right thanks, Nick. All right.